Today is February 1st. February is Black History Month. And we're going to be doing a lot of a lot of work on that uh, topic during this month. Today, uh, very pleased to have a show we're calling Black History Now. Uh, and we're very fortunate to be joined by uh, Josie Stanfield, who is a local activist uh, here in town. Uh, uh, organizer, director, Josie, you'll have to lead me on this one uh, for Central Oregon Diversity Project. Uh, so, uh, Josie, welcome to The Point. Thanks for having me. I love being on here. Okay, great. And so, yeah, can you just give us a little bit about your background, um, and then we'll we'll get a little more detail of what we're talking about when we say Black History Now. <laughs> yeah, so uh, my background specifically is I'm a Black woman. I'm a mother in the community. I'm a small business owner here in Central Oregon. Um, I started Central Oregon Diversity Project with local Black women um, in 2020, and we have since organized many protests and vigils and supply drives um, in support of our communities of color here. All right, great. So we we had this idea, as as Josie and I were talking about doing uh, Black History Now, um, instead of you know Black History Month going way back, like history is being made now, and 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 there's a way in which we also you know, history is being uh, I would say misused now in a certain way. And so, well, for example, we have uh, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer retired, and Joe Biden has committed to appointing uh, a black woman uh, to the um, to Supreme Court. And do you want to start out there, Josie? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just read the other day. Um, it was announced that Biden is planning to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. And this is huge. I don't know if people are truly um, grasping how big of a deal this is, especially for black women in our country. But to have our voices heard and to be represented for the first time in that setting and in such a an important setting is is life changing. It really is life changing. And more importantly, it's history making. And we're living that right now. Right. So the history books will write about this. Uh, and the history shows, the history podcasts, et cetera. Uh, and so it is good. I mean, that, that's one of the things to talk about. Like, let's recognize that history is happening, black history is happening right now uh, as we speak, as we watch this unfold. Do you have any thoughts about, uh, like, the kind of justice you'd like to see um, uh, President Biden appoint or nominate? I would like to see him nominate someone that is going to truly be progressive and is really going to fight for the rights and the voices of people of color. Um, I don't want, you know, someone that's just going to be quiet. You know, we, we need real representation and we need someone to fight for us on that level. So I'm really hoping that he does nominate someone that's, you know, going to go in there with no apologies and they're just going to be blackity black, black every moment that they get. <laughs> that's what I'm really hoping for. All right. Well, and I would hope that more than anything else, we get justice applied equally. Oh, yes, of course. But to be, yeah, to get justice applied equally first, we have to get our voices heard in there. And, you know, so this is a huge step to working towards that equality. Just having at least a black woman in there is going to be a huge foot in the door for us. So I'm excited. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, um, and I think that's what Steve was Steve was alluding to yeah. uh, that that, yeah. that idea right that concept. Um, and I just want to say I'm gonna I, I normally don't speak much in these interviews, but I do want to say that I have a personal favorite who is Sherilyn Eiffel, and she is the uh, director of the NAACP uh, Legal Defense Fund, and that is the position that Thurgood Marshall held when he yes. was, when he yeah right when he was appointed to the Supreme Court. 
Uh, so there's a great precedent there, and I like the idea of getting someone who's an actual right now practicing lawyer up there. What do you think about that? Yes. Oh, I think that's really important. I think, you know, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that we have a problem with the Supreme Court being mostly older white males. And so having someone that's in this now and is practicing now and is aware of what we are facing, especially issues of of people of color, is just it's going to change so much. And yeah. All right. Um, So that's, uh, you know, uh, and well, we have there's some opposition, but maybe let's not get into that. Uh, if it's, yeah, okay they don't deserve it. <laughs> yeah, well, they, don't, they don't deserve any. They don't get any time today. <laughs> well, it, yeah, well, it's it's as much as that as you know, trying to sort of stay focused on the on the positive aspects uh, of right. of this. Um, so the other thing that we were talking about, and I know you know our conversation may flow all kinds of places from here, but. Is the way in which uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s words have been co-opted and and misused to justify uh, policies and laws that have the effect of discriminating against people of color? Yeah, and I I mean, oh, keep going. No, you're fine. Go. Yeah, I was going to say that's something that I've really observed, especially because we did just celebrate MLK Day. Um, a lot of people tend to take his words and his philosophies and the things that he did, and they try to twist it into kind of this narrative of, you know, he was only about peace and, you know, he didn't want any of this BLM activity going on. He didn't want the Black Lives Matter movement. He wouldn't want protesting, you know, and that's unfortunately the message that a lot of people get from his words because the civil rights movement hasn't been given the awareness that it should be given. It hasn't been documented as well as, as it should have been documented. And so we get these cherry picked pieces of what Dr. King said, and they're now twisted, you know, from black history, they're now twisted today to be used against activists that are still fighting this movement. And I think that's a really big thing is that when we look back on black history, are you relearning your black history? Because, you know, a lot that we've learned about black history is just the surface of what was really said and done. Mm-hmm. Well, I also think that America suffers from amnesia when it comes to history. Uh, It's easy to forget what was said and what was done and the content. And it was very disappointing to see the FBI make a statement about Martin Luther King when, you know, uh, they did everything they could to foil him. Yeah. Yeah, they really did. He was the most wanted man in the country. They you know, dubbed him the most notorious liar in the nation. And just every time he tried to do something, they were there to strike him down. And so now for them to be like, oh, you know, Martin Luther King was a great guy and we loved him. It's like, no, no, you didn't. Let's get to the real history and let's talk about the mistakes that you made so we can actually have accountability held and grow as a country. Otherwise, we're just going to keep, you know, like you said, we're going to get that amnesia and we're just going to keep going through this cycle. And as a black woman and an activist today, I've seen it. I've been called, you know, every time I, I talk, I, I get called a liar by thousands of people. And I just, I don't understand how people don't see that we are repeating history in so many ways. Hmm. Yeah. And one of the, uh, one of the things historically is that, that Dr. King was actually pretty well liked in his early years, <laughs> like after I have a dream and, and some of those things. But when he began to really move for economic justice especially when he, he came out so strongly against the Vietnam War 
1967, uh, the Memphis sanitation workers strike. Of course, that was close to the end of his life. But um, the uh, that's when the tide really turned against him. Like when he actually right. started taking more uh, assertive stands for uh, for policies that weren't just "I have a dream." Right, and I have. I don't know if you mind if I read a quote here, but oh, um, please do. Yeah, I, I think that this is really important. And, you know, I try to kind of highlight this as often as I can, because I think that this right here is just really important. What he said, um, it says a leading voice in the chorus of social transition belongs to the white liberal. Um, over the last few years, many Negroes have felt that their most troublesome adversary was not the obvious bigot of the Ku Klux Klan or the John Burt Society, but the white liberal who is more devoted to order than to justice and who prefers tranquility to equality. And I think a lot of people don't pay attention enough to what he said there and what he said following that. I, I have more here if you wouldn't mind me reading it, but I think just that right there is very powerful is that we aren't, you know, our most powerful adversaries right now aren't the KKK. It's the people that we need to be in allyship with us that are cherry picking parts of history and using it against us. Yeah. You can keep reading the, if you want to. Awesome. Yeah, I would love to. So it says the white liberal must see that the Negro needs not only love, but justice. It is not enough to say, quote, we love Negroes. We have many Negro friends. They must demand justice for Negroes. Love that does not satisfy justice is no love at all. It is merely a sentimental affection, little more than what one would love for a pet. Love at its best is justice concretized. Love is unconditional. It is not conditional upon one staying in his place or watering down his demands in order to be considered respectable. The white liberal must rid himself of the notion that there can be a tensionless transition from the old order of injustice to the new order of justice, because the Negro has not gained a single right in America without persistent pressure and agitation. Nonviolent coercion always brings tension to the surface. This tension, however, must not be seen as destructive. There is a kind of tension that is both healthy and necessary for growth. Society needs nonviolent gadflies to bring its tensions into the open and force its citizens to confront the ugliness of their prejudices and the tragedy of their racism. It is important for the liberal to see that the oppressed person who agitates for his rights is not the creator of tension. He merely brings out the hidden tension that is already alive. You know, it, it's hard to imagine uh what he was thinking at the time that he wrote all this stuff, but that's absolutely brilliant. You know, I, I don't think anybody could find fault with anything that was said in that particular piece. I truly don't think you can find any fault in that. And through my lived experience, you know, I, I keep this quote really close. Um, I, I mean, it's more than a quote. It's a small excerpt of what he said, but I do keep it close because living in a community that is, you know, mostly white and having so few black people here, we, I need this reminder that I'm not the enemy. I need the reminder that I'm allowed to fight for my rights. And that, you know, like you said, there's not a tensionless transition. That's not going to happen. And so, you know, these quotes that are cherry picked, not the one that I just read, but 
other ones that are cherry picked and used against activists. They're used to gaslight us and, and to make us feel like we are radical and violent and and that we are causing this tension. And so, you know, these are the parts of black history that are important to us are things like this that were said by Dr. King, because this reminds us that what we're doing is necessary and that what we're doing is going to, to cause change. I think restraint is one of the most difficult things there is to uh, keep from being sucked into and letting a, a situation become violent. And my hat's off to the people that were involved in the sixties. I don't know how they did it. Honestly. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's a big thing that uh, Dr. King talked about too, was nonviolence and that, you know, nonviolence doesn't mean the lack of anger or the lack of frustration or the lack of agitation. You know, I've participated in many, many, many protests in the BLM movement. And I have never seen someone that I was protesting with just go up to authority and assault them out of nowhere. Or, you know, it's always been peaceful protests that we've had until we are countered by the violence of the authority that we're oppressed from. And so when people see, you know, on the news, they see these BLM protests and they're like, oh my gosh, all this violence, Dr. King would have hated this. There's so much violence. They're not seeing what was causing that violence and that that violence was caused from the authority that showed up and decided to demand that we water ourselves down and demanded that we leave and that we demand and demanded that we don't exercise our American right to protest and gather. And so nonviolence, you know, when people see a protest and they see fights or whatever, automatically they're like, Oh, this is a violent protest. It's on BLM. Then that's not the case. You need to see what's causing this violence. And you need to see that the people who are out there protesting are nonviolent. Yeah, and it seems like, at least locally, uh, the counter-protesters want to align themselves with the, with the police. And if, if you are not engaging in violence, it's pretty hard for the police to align themselves with that particular situation. Yeah, and I think it's kind of unique here in Central Oregon as well, because um, a lot of the counter-protesters are the police. And so... You know, they like, you know, you've, I've heard the saying before, why don't you see, um, I can't remember exactly how the quote goes right now. I don't want to get it wrong, but it's, you know, why don't it goes along the lines of why don't you see, you know, cops or clan rallies and cops, you know, in the same thing. And it's because they're wearing the same uniforms. And that's the thing here is that, you know, these counter protesters are aligning with the cops because the cops and the counter protesters here are family and the counter protesters are the cops. And, you know, so it's just a mess here in central Oregon of, just this white supremacist mindset that has really infiltrated our authority here. And that's, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that's something that, you know, we actually got into Nash as a national matter, actually with Terrell Young here on KPOV way back in 2017, there was a, a report that came out, a national report that came out covering that topic. I just wanted to, one of, one of my favorite, uh, Dr. King quotes and, um, it definitely applies today just as strongly, I believe, or maybe even more strongly. It was during the Vietnam War in the Riverside Church speech, which is my favorite. And I, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it was any society that uh, spends more on preparations for war than programs for social uplift is approaching spiritual doom. And I think I'm pretty close on that. Um, 
and it, it, it and we're doing that right now. We're spending seven hundred billion dollars on the military, and we're not providing programs for anybody really. And I, that 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 hits people of color much harder, right? And so I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that in, in today's society. I mean, that, this was 1967, but it's still happening. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely still happening. We spend a ridiculous amount of funding on war. Um, and yeah, like you said, I don't think that's changed at all. I think if anything, we're probably spending more now. Um, and I think on an even smaller scale, it's important because when you get down into like city council levels, even the city councils are spending more on policing than they are on social programs that are going to uplift our communities. And so I think, you know, like spending a lot of money on war is a huge problem that we need to address. But um, as individuals, please confront your city council and take part in your city council meetings to make sure that the funding they're spending towards police, which in itself is a form of war to me, is going towards your communities of color and towards just your communities in general. We need more social programs. Overall, we just need plain more involvement from citizens. Uh, yes. It, it's, I'm, uh, I live in Redmond and I'm always disappointed when I t- turn in, tune into the uh, city council meetings and see how low the turnout is to actually watch what our city council is doing. And, and the only answer there is, is to get more people involved. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, I see a lot of posts from Clifford Evelyn. He's a black man and he's on the Redmond City Council. And, you know, he's always stressing that point as well, that more people need to get involved and that the issues he's seeing, you know, that he needs people to confront, people aren't confronting like they should be. And so if you live in Central Oregon and Redmond and you don't know who Clifford Evelyn is, please go look him up and follow his page because he is a black man and he is talking and you should be listening. (laughs) Yeah. So, Josie, we've got about a minute left. That's it. These things go by so fast. Do you have any anything else you'd like to add? Um, I would kind of like to, you know, stress the main points that we went over today. Um, making yourself uncomfortable and relearning the history of Dr. King and what he said. Um, analyzing how you're using his words to potentially harm people today, people of color, um, specifically black activists. And realize that you're living black history now. You know, that's always so amazing to me that, you know, we see... And it's, you know, it's, I don't even know what the word would be to explain it, but, you know, I see people from our community all the time that, you know, will share quotes from black people, black activists in the past. And they're like, you know, this is so, this is so amazing that they said this. And I'm like, you know, you have black people in your community saying the same thing today, you know, and for some reason you don't look at the black people today that are speaking as fantastically or as um, like almost unreal You know, like they almost act like the black people from the past, like Dr. King, weren't real and that they're these fantasy figures that they can just like reflect on. And and it's like, no, they were real and we still are real. We're still here saying these things. So listen, if you can feel that empowered from Dr. King's words, then you need to listen to the black men in your community just as well. If you can feel empowered by what Angela Davis says, then you need to listen to the black women in your community just as well. Like, you know, their black history is happening now. All right. Uh, that is a beautiful place to end. <laughs> Josie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. And um, Stay yeah. strong, sister. Stay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You are, thank you. you are a powerhouse. All right, so we're going to have to leave it, uh, Josie. We'll hope, look forward to the next time we get to do this. Yes, Take, thank yeah. you. I really right. appreciate you all. Take care.
You've been listening to a KPOV Critical Conversation. To hear more engaging interviews on important topics, please visit kpov.org slash critical dash conversations.